Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the podcast editor for The War Room. Today, we would like to talk about peacekeeping. Right now, around the world, anywhere between 20 and several dozen operations uh, are underway to make, maintain, secure peace in different regions. Uh, Peacekeeping operations in Africa in particular are among the most complex challenges facing the international community, requiring the cooperation of different local and international stakeholders and sometimes multiple international and non-governmental organizations. Peacekeeping can be vital to helping societies overcome crises, though creating and sustaining support for such operations is never easy or self-evident. Our guest today is Dr. Paul D. Williams, professor in the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University and associate director of the Security Policy Studies MA program, an academic expert and consultant in the politics and effectiveness of peace operations, the dynamics of war and peace in Africa, and emerging threats in international security. Dr. Williams has especially worked recently with the African Union mission in Somalia, AMISOM, on which he has recently published a new book, Fighting for Peace in Somalia. He's one of the world's foremost experts on the problems and possibilities of peacekeeping, and we are delighted to have him with us for a conversation on a better peace. So welcome, Professor Williams. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to have you here. Um, You were here in Carlisle to make a presentation to Strategy Bridge. So we like to mention our our friends out in the the academic and uh, and policy discussion world. Um, what, What was your presentation about last night? Yeah, that's right. So I, it's the first time I've been asked to a to a pub to talk uh, officially about um, peacekeeping operations. But yeah, the Strategy Bridge folks asked me to come and give an overview of the the new book I've I've recently published on the African Union mission in Somalia, called uh, Fighting for Peace in in Somalia. So the the talk I gave there is really just an overview of the the main points of the book and the a sort of quick history of this fascinating but but deadly peace operation. Right, and you say the. Uh, Amazon mission began in 2007? That's correct, yeah. March 2007, they deployed. And of course, for Americans, especially Americans with military memories, right? they think of uh, Somalia, they think of 1993, they think of Black Hawk Down. What happened between the withdrawal of American forces in late 93, early 94, Mm -hmm. and 2007? Yeah, that's a good place to start, yeah. So October 93, very famous or infamous in in American history for um, the Black Hawk Down battle. The short version is uh, the the U.S. forces left in 1994, and they were followed the following year, 1995, by the U.N. Mm. peacekeepers who also withdrew. And so the short version is from then 1996 right the way through to 2007, you didn't have any international peacekeeping forces at all in Somalia. So really the country was sort of split up into different segments. Mm -hmm. Somaliland had declared independence in the northwest, and then you had Puntland in the north and eastern part claiming autonomy but not independence and then sadly you had really a lot of sort of low level intensity conflict going on in the rest of south central somalia but nothing happened to attract international attention until i would say a few years later it's 1998 when the u.s embassies are bombed uh, you may recall in kenya and, and tanzania right. 
and we suspected that some of the folks um, engaged in you know planning and, and conducting those bombings were either transiting through or, or working with people in Somalia. And so it's really from that period onwards, right? After 1998, there's more of a sort of counter-terrorism focus on Somalia. And then, of course, fast forward to 9-11. Mm-hmm. And again, similar types of what are the links between al-Qaeda associates and um, uh, actors in Somalia. And so for, for that period of after 9-11 and 1998, there's really a sort of counter-terror focus mm-hmm. and a sort of watching but not the same type of thing. There's not actual deployments of, um, of international peacekeeping forces. That doesn't happen until, as we mentioned, 2007. And the, the key development there is that uh, the warlords who were then running Mogadishu for a lot of this, um, this period, they were actually kicked out by a, a, a sort of coalition of the business community and what was called the Islamic Courts Union. Hmm. And these guys fought back against the, the sort of warlords in Mogadishu, and they took back the city of Mogadishu in June of 2006. But the trouble was there was a lot of um, uh, sort of similar talk about um, what extent were these Islamic courts connected to al-Qaeda in East Africa, to what extent were they pushing a sort of irredentist agenda to claim mm-hmm. back some um, Ethiopian territory that they, they believed was really Somali. And so in response to that, Ethiopia um, intervened with a, a force of, well, no one knows, I don't know the exact number, 15,000 or so Ethiopian troops and they brought a, what they called the transitional federal government, uh, which was a, a Somali government, but it was created in Djibouti and Kenya next really? door. And, and it and was brought into Mogadishu on the back of those Ethiopian forces. Interesting. Because uh, this, I guess, is, is part of the larger problem with peacekeeping is on the one hand, those who were uh, peacekeeping can be sort of an afterthought for a certain type of security studies yep. thinker. And yet when a state collapses into complete chaos, uh, that it becomes a, a very good breeding ground for lots of organizations. The, yes. the example of Afghanistan in the 1990s. And so I guess what happened in Somalia shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. No. But uh, it was only when it became threatening enough to Somalia's neighbors, would you say, by 2000, that, that it was decided something needs to be done? Yeah, that's the key dynamic. As mm-hmm. I said, I think it's partly about the neighbors, in this case, Ethiopia, being concerned about developments. Mm-hmm. And then for a more Western audience, it's the potential for a nexus between international terrorism and this collapsed state. So, yeah, Somalia had been conflict ridden and very turbulent for this whole period. Mm-hmm. But it didn't necessarily attract international forces until then. And so, yeah, after the Ethiopians intervened in in December of uh, 2006, Mm -hmm. they bring this, what's called the TFG, the Transitional Federal Government, which is Somali politicians, but they've been elected or selected by really the diaspora and the international community out in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And they're now brought into the capital city. And any time that a, uh, a nominal government requires foreign soldiers to protect it in its own capital, you know there's a problem with legitimacy. And so Amasom appears because the Ethiopian forces very quickly decide they want out. Uh-huh. They, I think they, they feel they've, made a, they've entered a bit of a quagmire here. They've, they've installed this um, uh, basically foreign slash local government in Mogadishu but very quickly they come under attack from the forerunners of what's going to be Al-Shabaab and the um, Mm. other organizations later on and so Ethiopia is looking for an exit route but it wants to protect still the transitional government that it's brought to Mogadishu and it's that's where Amazon comes in the African Union can deploy soldiers to allow the Ethiopians to leave but also protect this fledgling new government. And I guess for Ethiopia right the challenge is right Somalia is a neighbor but Somalia also, Ethiopia, uh, 
would not want to be accused of having any designs on Somali territory, even uh, and you know, there is a history there as well. There course. is. You're right. Yeah. I mean, historically, Somalia and Ethiopia have fought each other um, a few times, but um, the issue here for many Somalis, they are very suspicious about mm-hmm. Ethiopian military activities in in Somalia. Um, during the 1990s, Ethiopia had conducted a lot of sort of um, what we might call decapitation mm-hmm. efforts against one of the forerunners of al-Shabaab, um, uh, al-Itihad al-Islamiyah, which operated in the sort of border regions between Ethiopia and Somalia. So yeah, many Somalis will raise suspicions that they think their next door neighbor, Ethiopia, is trying to keep them a weak and failed mm-hmm. state. And so it, yeah, the, the presence of Ethiopian soldiers in Mogadishu does not go down well and that and that's really what al-shabaab played on that was mm-hmm. the recruiting um drum so it's a kind of a kind of nationalist appeal absolutely yeah Al- al-shabaab um basically then claimed the sort of mantle of the we are the domestic resistance mm-hmm. movement right? right meaning literally the youth right we are the the young resistance movement to this ethiopian invasion and al-shabaab said they've brought with them an illegitimate government right an ineffective right. government these have just been parachuted in these were mainly diaspora folks who ran away from Somalia when the going got tough, if you like. And so the final uh, sort of salt in the wound is that Ethiopia is run, you know, primarily by Christian right. elites. So, so there's, there's, there's nationalist questions, there's religious questions. Yes. Uh, and well, and but do, uh, the idea being once the African Union gets involved, that the African Union can can speak for Africa, if you will. <clears throat> but is not associated with Ethiopian imperialism. And so does that mean that the Somalis, they're less afraid of Nigerians, Kenyans, whoever else is coming so, in? So, yeah, that, that's the theory. But again, mm-hmm. we run into a problem in practice. So, yeah, mm-hmm. the theory was we would replace these the unilateral Ethiopian forces with an African Union mm-hmm. multinational force, right? And mm-hmm. the, the African Union would be more legitimate right, and would be able to be an impartial peacekeeping force in a way that the Ethiopians weren't. Mm-hmm. The problem we have, of course, is where is the African Union based and headquartered? It's, it's in Ethiopia, right? In Addis Ababa. <laughs> so, again, for the skeptical Somalis, right. replacing Ethiopian soldiers with an African Union force, they would say, well, this is Ethiopia manipulating the African Union's decision-making, and this is the Ethiopians are still you know, playing a role behind the, the curtain, if you like. And so, yeah, when the African Union forces arrived, it was actually just one country, Mm. um, Uganda. Uganda. was the only Mm -hmm. country that volunteered to send its forces in. So for the first nine months, there's only about two battalions, about 1,600 Ugandan soldiers deploy in um, to Mogadishu. And initially, they're operating alongside and in parallel with the Ethiopian soldiers. And then Ethiopia doesn't actually withdraw until a little bit later, January 2009. And then after about nine months, Burundi is the mm-hmm. second country that joins the Ugandan. So it's a, a sort of strain. You wouldn't necessarily have predicted this in advance. Right. But two East African countries that are not neighbors to Somalia. And I, I should say as well, at the start of the mission, there was actually an explicit worry that we shouldn't put the neighboring states in Somalia. So Kenya, Ethiopia and Djibouti. As you know, everywhere in the world, neighbors often have very either partisan or, or you know, explicitly political agendas. So the initial plan was, could we deploy peacekeepers in Somalia that weren't from the frontline neighborhood states? Which is why emphasis turned to yeah, other states beyond, and it was Uganda and Burundi, who stayed as the only contributing countries for about four years. Really? Yeah. And so how... I've, since I neither Uganda nor Burundi is is known globally as a, uh, a, a massive military power with lots of lots of force projection possibilities, mm-hmm. what is it that uh, 
what is it that motivates a Uganda and a Burundi to get involved and what kind of support do they have that allows them to to maintain such operations? Yeah, that's a good question. So for Uganda first, I think it's a little bit about the president, Yari mm-hmm. Museveni, mm-hmm. Uh, and he is seen and wants to be seen as sort of the, the key big player in East Africa. Uh, he is a sort of very, um, he's never been shy about his anti-Islamist sort of um, leanings. And so he wanted to, I think, ingratiate himself in the good books of Western powers. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be seen as sort of at the front lines of fighting against Al-Qaeda and um, Islamic terrorism in East Africa. But he also had a bit of, um, let's say, some shady reputation to help cover up, right? So the Ugandan forces had been fighting previously in a number of places, but one of them had been in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, and they'd got a bit of a reputation there for illegally extracting minerals and resources and and other like. So this was, from Museveni's perspective, this was a chance to sort of improve the image and reputation of the Ugandan army. Interesting. So a sort, of, a sort of camel washing, right? Is this is you, I, you 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 cleanse your reputation by sending your troops yes. someplace else? Yeah. And then on on top of those sort of explicitly political reasons, it was fair to say that you know people recognised that if Al Shabaab and other groups got a stronghold in Somalia, mm-hmm. this was unlikely to stay hermetically sealed in Somalia. Of course, Al Qaeda is not talking about. Um, well, it's talking about sort of caliphates and it's talking about East Africa and not paying attention to international political borders. So there's an element of trying to stem a potential spillover problem. Mm-hmm. And then the third element I would say that is at play here is what you mentioned, right? The, the training and equipment and mm-hmm. the security force assistance packages that came to the uh, Ugandan army as a result of this decision. So country, a variety of countries, but mainly the United States, um, and the United Kingdom provided various types of um, pre-deployment training, security assistance, and support. Interesting. You mentioned the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I don't want to—I don't want to get the discussion too far afield. But when we think about places where so international conflict, problems with peacekeeping, problems with governmental transition, right? The this was going on in the, the beginning of the twenty, late twentieth, beginning of the twenty-first mm-hmm. century. Um, is in what ways has uh, the African Union's activity in uh, Somalia, the creation of Amisom, in what way is it a reaction against uh, the the sense, uh, any experiences that people had or lessons they felt that they had learned from how badly or well things had gone in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yeah, that's absolutely it. And it, it's actually, if before it was called Democratic Republic of Congo, just Congo back in the 1960s, <laughs> right? You may remember this was the site of the UN's biggest ever Truth. at no. the time peace operation. There was a lot of fighting. Uh, Belgium's withdrawing, mm-hmm. Katangan secessionists, there were private mercenaries fighting around. So the Congo has a very special place in how, for many Africans, you know, this is what happens when outside powers meddle mm-hmm. ineffectively, and it showed the limits of the United Nations in engagement. But the, the key point, you're right, the new African Union is new in a number of senses, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the new African Union is created in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And it takes a very different view of international intervention and peace operations than its predecessor, the Organization of African Unity. The old OAU hadn't really wanted to get involved in peacekeeping and, right. and didn't really as a because result. Because they, they were fixated on, on preserving sovereignty, right? Absolutely, they, they yeah, right. Their big thing was non-intervention, borders. yeah, mm-hmm. and non-interference. And so it wouldn't have made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, many of whom, of course, were dictators, um, the old heads of state at this time. So the African Union comes in and it, it changes the rhetoric, if you like. It, instead of talking about non-interference, it talks about a phrase called non-indifference. 
non-indifference. Yeah, okay. so it, it shifts the, the discourse and the rhetoric, and it says in the 21st century, us Africans, we cannot be sort of neutral and we cannot bury our heads in the sand when uh, you know states are collapsing and civil wars are spilling over borders. So they replace non-interference with the, the bumper sticker of non-indifference. And if you sort of take... Um, you know, the idea of when a, a neighbor's house is on fire, you know, you all need to, the community needs to help before right. it, it spreads. So the African Union took a very different view and it said, yeah, we should be in the business of peace operations. And to my mind, it wasn't really Congo that was the key. It was the Rwandan genocide in ah, 1994 was at so the key sure. yeah, difference. The, the AU said very clearly, this is not an African value, right, to genocidally slaughter your people. There was a lot of hand-wringing in Africa as well as the Western world about the failed response to the Rwandan genocide. And right. so the folks that set up the African Union said, we must never let this happen again, right? And peace operations are one of the key instruments to try and prevent that. And so put those things together, the AU actually has now embarked on over a dozen, a dozen different peace operations. Right now, today, going um, on? Not, they're not all going on today, okay. but since 2003, okay. it's launched operations in Burundi, mm -hmm. in Darfur, in Sudan, a couple of missions in the Comoros, the big mission that I've been working on in, in Somalia, but also missions in the Central African Republic and uh, Mali. Mm -hmm. So it's it's taken a very different approach, but it, it's because, as I mentioned before, right, it wants to explicitly engage in conflict management and um, conflict prevention in a way that its predecessor organization never did. And so they've had, as I you know, talk about and write about, they've had a lot of sort of teething problems. Mm -hmm. This is a new organization, still, you know, less than 20 years old. Right. And so it's it's in that adolescent phase, if you want to use that metaphor. But it's trying a lot harder, right? It's ambition and its desire to do peacekeeping sort of in the African way has been sort of foremost in its agenda. I find that, I find that very interesting, right? Because the, the uh, ch uh, contrast with the OAU, which is an immediate, in the immediate post-colonial era, mm -hmm. the emphasis was on preserving African identity in terms of individual national identities. Yep. But now you get to the point where there there's a sense that there are broader African identities that while the... The AU, the AU is still interested in preserving national sovereignty. They do not allow in borders to get in the way of solving regional problems. Yeah, they've had, and they've actually put this is a, a constitutional change, if you like. So uh -huh. in the in the African Union's Constitutive Act, right, the the founding legal document um, and the basis for the union, there's an article in there, Article Four H, which explicitly deals with that point you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Article Four H says uh, the African Union has the right to intervene in its member states in what it calls cases of grave circumstances. Mm -hmm. And grave circumstances are defined as genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And so that is a literally 180-degree departure from the old Organization of African Unity, where we would never have seen this type of intervention endorsed. Now, the slight irony is that the African Union hasn't actually invoked Article 4H. I was about to ask. They, yeah, have, they haven't practice. met to do this. No, they, okay. because Article 4H would allow the African Union to operate without the consent of the host government. Ah, okay. So this is like the scenario, uh, for example, in, in 2011 when the mm -hmm. Security Council authorized the intervention in Libya. Mm -hmm. This would be tantamount to, you know, enforcement operations, tantamount to a military invasion. Right. And so the union has been very careful about how it wants to debate and apply that article. But the very fact that that article exists mm -hmm. is a stark change. Interesting, because that, that also means, so from the African Union's perspective, right, AMISOM is there to protect the existing Somali government, Correct. the one that had been put in place by the Ethiopians. Correct. If, if, if Somalia were still a completely... Uh, 
a failed state with no central government, then they would have to consider either either asking the permission of one of the powers in the in the state or acting with them or making this overall declaration, yeah. right? There's, you know, we, we declare a, a power vacuum and we need to act. Yeah. Well, remember, that's what the United Nations did back in 1991 Indeed. and 92, right? When there was literally a collapsed government, no government in Somalia. The resolution that authorized the US-led mm-hmm. um, unified task force said... Um, we're going to act in the absence mm-hmm. of a central government, right, uh, mm-hmm. rather than against the wishes of one. So the Somali operations were not seen in legal terms as a, a an invasion or a military right. intervention against the will of a sovereign state. It was seen as happening in the absence of a sovereign government. And so that's the the difference. Now, as you said, in fast forward to 2006, 2007, yes, the African Union justifies the mission as protecting Somalia's transitional government mm-hmm. and it's it's explicitly called a transitional government because they realize it doesn't actually have a finalized national constitution right. there's no finalized basis um, Somalia doesn't get a an official federal government until September 2012 so after five years of yes. Amazon yes well and uh, to, to move into the larger question about peacekeeping and as an international operation it's it's interesting right that Amazon is a the African Union is the 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 frontline actor, the main actor, mm-hmm. and that's the way the Africans want it. And that's the way the international community would like it too, right? That the Africans taking uh, charge of this problem. But you've also you've coined a term in your research, right? Partnership peacekeeping. Yep. That uh, that even though the African Union is itself a regional multinational organization, that it needs other partners. Some of them are also regional multinational organizations. Some of them are individual states. How does that work? Uh, you know, what, 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 uh, how would you ex- ex- expand on your idea of partnership peacekeeping and how does how is Amazon an example of sure. how it works? So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm the first person to coin it. It's been floating around for a while. So but You're I've the first person on a better uh, piece to say it. So well, yeah, we'll, we'll okay, stick with that's, that. uh, that's <laughs> point taken. Um, so the idea is, yeah, partnership peacekeeping just means um, the conflict in question or the crisis that we're trying to deal with is too complicated or too big for any one single actor ah. to deal with the whole set of issues on their own. Mm-hmm. So partnership peacekeeping is a phrase that says what happens when either several states, international organizations are trying to do the same operation, right? They're trying to support the same type of agenda and operation in a particular country, but they have to form various types of partnerships to do it. Okay. And so in the Amazon case in Somalia, You're right, the African Union countries provide the soldiers and the police for this mission. But the African Union doesn't have money to support these um, peacekeepers in the field, and the African Union doesn't have the bureaucratic capabilities to provide mission support. It doesn't have the logistics capabilities to provide the logistics necessary. So partnership peacekeeping in Amazon's case is that the Africans provide the personnel, Mm -hmm. Then it's the European Union that actually pays all the monthly allowances for the peacekeepers. Um, So, yeah, the European Union uses what it's called its Africa Peace Facility to fund and support this African mission. And because the AU can't provide its logistics support itself, uh, since 2009, the United Nations has set up a special mechanism to provide logistics support. So it's the UN folks that provide everything like rations, Mm -hmm. base refurbishment, energy provision, they fly the logistics back and around all the different parts of South Central Somalia. And this is out of the UN's uh, peacekeeping funds? Correct, mm-hmm. yes. So this is a, a joint effort and a partnership, both financially as well as politically and, and militarily. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a series of bilateral partners engaged as well. So the United States, the United Kingdom have been the two main um, partners that have engaged in military support. Uh-huh. So US and UK 
have provided a lot of pre-deployment training, have provided a lot of equipment and security force assistance for the African Union peacekeepers. And then you've got other bilateral partners who don't provide, say, lethal and um, military support, but countries like, um, let's say, Japan, um, China, India a little mm -hmm. bit, they provided some financial funds to help um, tick Amazon along. And so that's what I mean by partnership peacekeeping here is that for the African Union mission to actually work on the ground, it requires, you know, actually several different international organizations and a bunch of different states to make that work. And then the final element of partnership, of course, is with the local government right. and the local population. So the, the sort of final leg of Amazon's partnership is the Somali National Army, the Somali police force, and hopefully support from local Somali um, civilians. Fascinating. I'm going to ask you an unfair question, uh, and that is, uh, is Amazon an, a, a good example of how partnership peacekeeping can work? Slash is is it a success story in par partnership peacekeeping? You know, relatively speaking, right? All all conditions being taken into account. I, I mean, think for me, Amazon, it's like it's partly the best of times and uh -huh. partly the worst of times, right? This is a model that is very very complicated. Mm -hmm. So I, I've studied about two hundred different peace operations. If you count them from like the the late nineteen forties around the world to today, right. depending how you define them, there's been about two hundred or so involving military contingents mm -hmm. to keep the peace. In my opinion, Amazon is the most complicated model of mm -hmm. partnership peacekeeping that we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, and in one sense, right, that's a positive because the fact that all those different organizations and partners have come together, mm -hmm. they've been willing to work and they've, they've stuck together now for 12 years. This mission is ongoing today. It started in March 2007. So just the very fact that we can bring the UN, the European Union, the African Union, there's also EGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which is the East mm -hmm. African and, and Horn Regional Authority. A whole lot of bilateral players work with these local partners, where, as we've said, it's been a fledgling transitional government. So in a positive sense, this shows what uh, sort of partnership peacekeeping can achieve in a really difficult situation, right? A war zone, an ongoing conflict. But on the, the worst of time side, right, the, of course, huge problems of strategic coordination, huge operational problems come up with this model, right? When, to give just one example, logistics. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never met a military commander that when I've talked to them said, yeah, you know, it's a good idea that the guy running the military operations is not in charge of his logistics support, right? No military commander wants to be separated from the logistics. You'd, you'd have a hard time finding somebody in this building who would say Absolutely, right? We're in it. the right place for that um, yeah. discussion. But that's exactly what happened in this case, mm. right? So the African Union force commander that's running the operations is not the person making the key decisions about logistics support and provision. That's being done by the United Nations. And so in a practical and operational sense, this is not an ideal way to run a mission. And of course, the UN, all its procedures, its framework, its logistical sort of, um, well, just its, its MO for doing these things, right, is based on a world of peacekeeping not on a world of war fighting. Mm -hmm. And so the UN's you know, standard procedures, everything from like, you know, how much blood does a level two military hospital need in a standard peacekeeping operation? It needed about 100 times as much in Amazon because it's a war fighting mission, right? And so the, the UN is trying to provide logistics to a war fighting campaign, but it's based on procedures and frameworks and procurement policies that are set up for the world of peacekeeping not a world of war fighting. And so that, that's just one example of where, yeah, of course, this complicated model is not ideal. It right. would be much better, in my opinion, 
if you want to engage in combat, you should be really as unilateral as possible, right? Mm. You want sure. people who have the same military and strategic culture. You want them to have the same sort of interoperability, the same equipment, the same doctrine. You want commanders that can talk in the same language. Now, right. Amazon Using the here, same radios, right? Absolutely. Here, Amazon doesn't have that. It has a Ugandan force right. and a Burundian force. Uganda, primarily Anglophone. Burundi, primarily Francophone. There's some crossover in terms of Swahili, right? And ways some, of speaking. But not, yeah, but some, but not, but not all. Word, yeah. Not all. So, uh, yeah, again, put that together, as I've said, commanders who are not in charge of their logistics, being authorized by an organization that is not paying their allowances mm -hmm. monthly. So, it, it, yeah, it's, as I said, it's the best of times and the worst of times. It exemplifies what international actors can achieve if they put their mind to it. Mm -hmm. But it also raises a whole lot of difficult operational problems. Um, well, I want to ask you one one last big question, as we're almost out of time, and that is, so based on your work on Amazon, but also your previous work, your work with, uh, uh, with the Providing for Peacekeeping Project, which unfortunately yep. we didn't get a chance to talk about a lot, but I'm, what is the, is there one big thing you would like an audience, especially say an audience in the United States, to understand or to know about peacekeeping mm -hmm. and about the role of the United States in international peacekeeping? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's actually a couple of things I would like to note. The first one is that peacekeeping works. Mm -hmm. um, United Nations peacekeeping has now been studied for over 70 years. It's been studied by literally hundreds of academics. And when you look at the overall impact of what the Blue Helmets have, in places where there's been a ceasefire or a peace agreement signed, and our job is to help implement and stabilize that country afterwards, the research on this is now large and it's unambiguous and it's that peacekeeping is the best tool we have in the box to do that. Countries from whether it's Liberia, Sierra Leone, Mozambique, Namibia, there's a long list, peacekeeping works. The second takeaway though, and this is where it's a bit more challenging and, and where the US could play positive roles, I think. The second big thing is that there are limits to what peacekeeping operations can achieve. And the big one here is that they can only achieve so much if we drop them into active war zones. Mm -hmm. So peacekeeping is a tool that works when the local belligerents are actually willing and want to sign up to peace and they need some help to build confidence, provide guarantees. Mm. When the local belligerents are still willing to fight and they've not stopped the war, dropping peacekeeping forces in the middle of that is not a recipe for immediate success. In fact, quite the opposite. So the sad thing I think that's happened in a lot of the really the last 15 years or so is more and more of missions that are called peacekeeping operations have no peace to keep. They're right. being dropped, like places like Mogadishu, mm -hmm. Mali, Central African Republic. Um, you know, we, maybe we'll deploy to Yemen, Libya, etc. Who knows? But when you put them, and actually Democratic Republic of Congo would That's be an another example, example, right? South Sudan, Darfur, other. You know, more and more of these missions are being dropped into war zones. There, they can only really do damage limitation, mm -hmm. as I would call it. They, they always, I think, make a bad situation a bit better. Mm -hmm. It would always have been worse, I think, if there hadn't been a deployment of these peacekeepers. But they can't solve and resolve the conflict. And so I think countries like the United States that can provide you know, training support and equipment support, that's important. But the key thing is political. Um, these missions need political pressure put on the belligerents, the actual conflict parties, they're the ones that can end these wars, not the peacekeepers. And so that, I think, is a sort of common misperception that's, that needs to be um, addressed. And so we need to measure our operations, uh, their, their success or failure, their effectiveness, with a clear sense of the possibilities but the limits of what they can do. Yes, yeah. That is a 
practical and uh, to a certain extent hopeful point upon which we can end this conversation. Paul Williams, thanks so much for joining us here on A Better Peace. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening to this conversation. Um, uh, We hope to uh, have enlightened and entertained you, and we hope to see you here on the podcast again in the future. Until next time, for A Better Peace and The War Room, I'm Ron Granary. Thanks for joining us. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.